Sorted Digital Ramblings podcast, brought to you by Click Through Marketing. Welcome back to the Sorted Digital Ramblings podcast. This episode is a little later than planned due to my poor calendar management, um, but we're back and we're going to make up for it by doing two podcast episodes this month. The first episode, we're going to be um, rumbling our way through the world of conversion rate optimization, um, learning about its place in digital marketing and also touching on data-led design. I'm Chris and as always, I'm joined by Liv. Liv, how are you? How's your, how's your last month been since we last recorded? Um, hello, I'm good, thanks. Very, very good. Since um, the last time we spoke, which seems like ages ago, loads has been happening. Um, most importantly, I went on a social with all of my work pod, which was really, really good. We went to Manchester and had a really jolly old time there. Um, and I wanted to tell you a little story before we even introduce our amazing guest today and it was something that happened that I told uh, Regan, our producer, insert quotation marks, um, around that and I told Regan and Regan was like, tell that in the podcast and I was like, okay, cool. So basically, I am a sleepwalker and it's quite well-known knowledge, like I do warn people like before I stop with them, like I do sleepwalk. Um, but in Manchester, obviously we'd been drinking since like one o'clock in the afternoon um we didn't get back to like one or something that might even be an exaggeration it might have been 12 uh but i decided in the middle of the night to scare all my team and including the next podcast uh co-host amy by getting up in the middle of the night and trying to jump out the window uh, for, no, for no reason we were on the 30th floor so like it was a near-death experience um but just started getting up, trying to walk out the window, and Amy's suitcase is in front of me, so I was kicking it and saying, like, I need to get out. And Amy was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, don't know, sorry. She was like, do you need the toilet? And I was like, yeah. So I started walking to the toilet, and then I decided to turn back around, look at Amy, and I was like, where's the room key? And she was like, what? And I was like, I need to go out. And she was like, just go back to bed. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> just realised it isn't as funny as I thought it was. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, um probably time to introduce my poor Amy Cox today. <laughs> poor thing. she's not paid enough to deal with this I know and I was sleeping in the same bed as Sarah Clark who was on a podcast last go round I think or maybe even the go round before that um, so everyone had a shock and it was just a good job that uh, I was wearing pyjamas because otherwise they'd have had a bigger shock of seeing me <laughs> walking, walking around in the nod but anyway back to podcasting um, today's guest is Alan Rowe. Hello, Alan Rowe. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Glad to be on this podcast at last. <laughs> nice. At last. Your time has come. Tell us a bit about yourself, Al. Oh, where to, where to begin? Well, I, I'm, I've been at ClickThrough for nearly 10 years and I have been a web developer since 1997. So that is 25 years ago. Um, and I have, I'm the director of conversion strategy at ClickThrough and set up the web development department sort of nine to ten years ago and moved more into conversion rate optimization in probably about the last three or four years. So does this mean, Al, that you've been doing web dev since before Liv was born? How old do you live? Uh, 21. I was born in the uh, year 2000. God, that's depressing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it is very, it is very dep- she's depressingly young, I agree. Yeah, uh, I mean, I... I 
I think when I made my first web page, the as far as I was aware, the internet had been around for two years. So there we uh, go. Al is an OG. Live to put it into your language. I'm also an OG because that's my initials. Just putting it out there. But Ali's actually <laughs> an original gangster. <laughs> <laughs> And um, when's your 10 year anniversary, Al? We have uh, to get you a carriage clock or something. Uh, I'm quite up for having a barometer. The weather's so changeable these days. Um, <laughs> the 18th of November this year. 18th of November. I'll mark that in my calendar and we'll get you a, a special 10 year gift. Um, so, Al, before we get into conversion optimization, and I think I know the answer to this, if you weren't in digital marketing, what would you do? I would be a musician, a professional musician. There we go. I knew that was good. I thought it was either going to be that or um, in theatre, because aren't you quite a keen Amdrum person as well? I am, but that's kind of come out of music. I was actually a professional musician. I had an album released in 1999 um, when I was but a young thing, and I loved it (laughs) so much, but... um, but it wasn't really paying the bills, and I had to grow up, so uh, I had to leave. And weren't you on channel? Weren't you on Channel Four? Yeah, Channel Four, um, Radio One, MTV. <gasps> really? Yep. Were, were you just singular, or were you in a band? In a band called Plutonic. It was a nice. vocal drum and bass band. Oh my god! Nineteen ninety-seven like, to two thousand and one. Like a cappella, or like with with instruments? With instruments. Yeah. It was sort of like jazzy, jazzy and a bit hardcore drum and bass with vocals. Are you on Spotify now? Yeah. It's Plut- to Plutonic, Plutonic with a K. Nice. No, Pri- Prime it. Numbers is the album. I-, I always push it at every single opportunity. Uh, and this is one. <laughs> there we go. Your streams are going to go up by one tonight. With yep. having a listen. <laughs> I'll be rocking out. I'll be rocking out. <laughs> And then, how did you get into this field, Al? Because particularly when you started, it was pretty... It was kind of... Roles in digital were still few and far between, weren't they? So how did you, how did you get into it? Uh, well, I did a PhD in molecular evolution theory, studying HIV virus back in the days before a cure was found. And in order to do that, there were sequences of DNA out there uh, on the internet. And you had to basically write software to analyse them because no one had made any software back then. So I learned to program as a result of that. And then halfway through the PhD, I got my MPhil, but then halfway through, I then got signed, got my record deal. So I left the PhD to pursue music. Um, but mm. I'd learned to program by that point. And then when it came to needing to earn some cash, I sort of happened upon making websites using the same language I'd learned at um, Nottingham University. There we go. That but this is stu- studying HIV into web dev, uh, yeah. a common path. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I then sort of worked at a few companies and then set up my own web development agency in 2008, which was in Litchfield, and then sold that into Phil at Click Through in 2012. Mm. Wow. Is, um, just seguing back into university, did you go University of Nottingham or Nottingham Trent? University of Nottingham. Oh, fancy. Nice. Okay, cool. I got rejected from <laughs> Nottingham, but accepted by Nottingham Trent. So that's so exciting, though. That's so bad. Yeah, it was pretty good. It, it was great fun. I think you probably win the award for most ex- most interesting backstory of our guests so far, don't you? I think that's got to be fair to say. So, um, for someone who might be stumbling upon the term conversion optimization for the first time, Al, um, 
tell us a little bit more about it. What actually is it? What does it mean? And what does what's a day to what does a standard typical day for a, a crow specialist look like? Well, conversion rate optimization is essentially what it says, optimizing the conversion rate of a website. So we all monitor performance in things like Google Analytics and and conversion rate is the number of times that uh, something that is desirable happens divided by the number of sessions that occur. And uh, mm. usually that's an e-commerce sale. And so we're essentially trying to maximize sales or lead capture or telephone calls or whatever that might be using best practice and data um, led design. Uh, it, it is something which every business should be doing, but not not that many businesses are doing. And it's it's just logical because, you know, you've got a business, you've got a website, you're trying to conduct your business on that website. And if you're not actually investing in trying to make that website sell the best, um, it's kind of like, what's the point? And why do you think people aren't investing in it, Al? Because you, you listen to the explanation and it seems a pretty straightforward choice to do so. So why do you think people still aren't, still in the year 2022? I think many people just don't... They think it's something more difficult than it is, maybe. I mean, it can be mm. as difficult as you want, but it's it's not rocket science. It's not some weird thing. It's literally just caring about the website that runs your business. So some people don't understand it. Um it's also a budget choice, so people have um, bud- you know, fixed budgets to deal with, and there's n- they usually put everything into traffic acquisition, and there's nothing left at the end of the day. But I think that's very short-sighted if you're only focusing on getting traffic, but you're not focusing on worrying about what that traffic does when it hits your website, then, uh, yeah. then there are problems. Yeah. You've obviously worked with like a lot of different clients that have a lot of different views on on like Crow. So obviously, some some care about it, some don't. How do you reckon that's shaped how you work and how you view the service overall? Well, I, I think that when I got into web development all those years ago, I did so because I thought the internet was really cool, and I thought it was a, an opportunity to to. It was a new form of art as far as I was concerned. And those principles kind of still stay with me today in, in that I, I think um, a website should be very attractive and, and, and beautiful, ideally. But actually, when you start to look at business performance, you realise it doesn't actually have to be beautiful. It has to just work. And so as a user of the internet as well, uh, and as someone that's always trying to make life easier, for me, it's all about does the website do its job? And that means looking at whether users get what they want from the website. So it's it's really a case of just marrying, the, marrying up something which sells the business properly using the brand guidelines with does it work? Does it work properly? Yeah. Coming from sort of like the background that you have, which is obviously like very creative and like musical and dramatic in the best possible way, did you... <laughs> struggle to see like crow as an art that doesn't have to be perfect every time like obviously with certain music and certain like dramatic arts they have to be a certain way to sort of work whereas crow obviously like you say it just has to work so was that like a tricky adjustment adjustment well because i had come to the internet from doing a science degree and i have a science background uh it's I've always had a handle on on art and science, and so mm. 
I think that's why I'm perfectly suited to do this job because conversion rate optimization consists of both some scientific and data analysis aspects along with that sort of more creative part. And, you know, one question that some people ask is, can anybody do Crow? And that's a difficult one to answer because, um, yes, anybody can do it, but to, but the more experience you've got in in working on websites, the more likely you are to probably succeed. And I know that some conversion agencies out there just have a bank of data scientists, you know, they'll have PhDs and other data scientists, and all they do is analyse the data. But to me, that's not enough, because, uh, you know, it has there has to be some logic behind the choices that you make when you're optimising websites, but at the same time, it's, you've still got to always be thinking about the customer, and to do that, you've got to have emotional intelligence, and you've got to understand what humans need and how that website can satisfy those needs. So do you, do you have to think like a customer when you're looking at a website and think, right, how, if I was a customer, what would I want to be different yeah, exactly. One of the things that I do a lot of in my job is is a very quickly audit websites and then tell people, tell website owners what I think they could do differently. And the first thing I do is ask myself, well, what is this website trying to do, and who are who is who's its audience? And then having sort of formed some opinion about that, whether it's right or wrong, um, and I'm getting that really just by looking for, uh, very, very quickly at the website and then thinking, okay, so what do I need to do on this website and, and how easy is it to do that? And then, yeah, I pretend I'm a customer, go through what I think should be the key user journeys and ask myself, did I encounter any problems? When you're sort of like reviewing them like very quickly and doing like quick audits, how do you find the best way to feedback is is it like being harsh being like a karen or is it being like con- not well, i feel like being constructive comes with it but like or is it just being like really gentle with like your approaching <laughs> feedback uh, i think that that really depends on the situation so firstly when i'm talking to the, the customer i will consider um whether you know where they're coming from and what their opinion of the website is i normally try to start off just being a little bit um flattering and I'll try to sort of point out the things that I think they're doing well and then I'll listen to what they what how they react to that and then decide to pivot in one direction or the other if I think the website is absolutely diabolical um, then I'll normally sort of try to bring that up quite quickly and if they think that the website's amazing then then I know we've got a bit of a a tough discussion ahead of us Um, but if they if they as, more, as is usually the case, if they've got problems themselves, then it's it's quite easy for me to just launch in. And and occasionally I've had to stop myself by, you know, because I was about to say something perhaps a, a bit too contentious for them to handle. Um, but I normally try to set, tell it how I think it is, if I'm honest. I feel like you are the best person to explain it, because if it was me, I'd be like, your website is absolutely rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, I was, on, I was on a call yesterday, um, and... The website design itself is dated. The design is five years old. I happened to be talking to the chap that had designed it. I didn't know that initially. Um, but but when I did the audit, actually, they ticked so many boxes. And really, from mm. a conversion rate optimization point of view, they were doing everything right. So lots of really good best practice in there. Really, the only problem is that the design was tired and old. And so mm. 
that's a really difficult situation because uh, the website was fast and uh, and it looked and it looked a bit dated but it had lots of best practice and that means that when they do something about it they've got to be really careful not to undo the good because mm. one of the biggest problems is redesigning a website and actually getting rid of all the all the best practice that you already had because somebody thinks it's time to change and they don't mm. actually understand why why change can be good or bad what do you think like the timeline is sorry i'm getting i'm getting so into this i was like so scared <laughs> about recording this because like, i'm not gonna know what's going on but what is the timeline for like a website to become outdated so say if you've done something a year ago would you have to look at it like in 12 months time again just to make sure that it's like on trend and keeping up with everything i think there's two answers to that so conversion rate optimization is about a continuous process and so i always talk about the golden gate bridge people i don't know whether it's true or not i think it's true i tried to look it up to find out if it's true but people say that when you've started when you've finished painting it it's time to start it's time to start again Yeah. yeah and so a website should never really be left it should be worked on all the time and that's because design tr- trends change and um, businesses change competition changes and so much about the marketplace change external factors like covid happen and all sorts of change happens and businesses have to react to that and so therefore the website needs to react to that and this is why testing is so important because you don't always know what's going to work so you try one thing you try another thing and you the, the process of optimization is iteration it's gradual change um for the better which kind of feeds into my love of evolution which is where i started but the second part of it is that um is that website design periods have actually got less so it used to be the case that people would leave their website for say five to ten years and then it was definitely five years and now it's about two and a half years so whether that's telling us that more businesses have cottoned on to the gradual continuous uh, improvement process or whether it just means that the world is moving faster and therefore even the slowest of businesses recognize they have to do something every two and a half years Mm. i'm not sure Mm. interesting um and how do you think crow sits amongst all the digital marketing channels al does it does it work alongside the likes of content and seo and paid media should it be a standalone activity or should it be central to to everything we do in digital what's your thoughts i think it can be a standalone activity but it definitely works best when it's central to all activity so we uh, increasingly talk about conversion centric and that's the approach we take at click through as you know and um you know, a business has that budget we were talking about earlier, and they're going to invest it in different traffic acquisition channels, um, paid search, paid social, but also organic search. And if the endpoints that we send the traffic to are basically not fit for purpose, then we're wasting that those businesses' money, and the, the businesses themselves are wasting that money. And they may even have hit upon a formula which works, um, where they have you know worked out that if they in, if they spend enough they're getting sufficient ROAS to make profit um, and therefore the activity justifies itself but if if the benchmark is way lower than it should be given their place in the industry and if just by looking at the website you can see there's all sorts of problems it seems crazy not to fix those problems because if mm. we do fix those problems then the ROAS is just going to go up and up and up and is there is there like activities that 
I guess you could say, can a crow mentality influence the way you do paid search, paid social, SEO content? Are there, are there kind of is the methodology you can take from crow and apply to the way you manage those channels that that will make them more effective? Yeah, and I think I think that's actually happening already as well because Google is a, a strong advocate of experimentation mm. and introduced something called content experiments. You know, back in the day, a long time ago, it has its own mm. testing platform, Google Optimize. So they are always pushing for testing, and so as a consequence of that, the ad platform that they run has testing kind of fundamentally built into it, and so we're always split testing uh, paid experiments anyway. But, um, and the, the same can be true to an extent of, of SEO. It's harder to do true testing experiments in SEO, but, you know, we can even do meta description tests, for example. Um, so we can therefore sort of see what effect that has. But where I think there's still more to do um, is to care, is to not necessarily be wondering about how um, ad, ad copy can be tested, but actually what, to, what are the endpoints that we're sending the traffic to? And so I think that's where that's where you probably need more of a, a CRO dedicated resource to come in. So the, it's the, the mentality of testing is something that everybody doing digital marketing should be looking at, no matter what channel they're doing. But when it comes to optimizing the endpoints, that probably involves somebody who's more into UX um, and CRO directly. Do you think that there's an order like? Uh, uh, like should crow be done before we like invest in digital marketing or is it is there no order to it and there's no sort of best practice i i think it probably comes down to pain points and, and you know performance so if if there's performance red, red flags because something's not working then that's that's the point where you would definitely be doing cro we should we should always just be doing looking at CRO opportunities simply because we want to optimise holistically the approach that we're taking. Um, you know, what, one of the things which I often talk about in my webinars is the idea that you could take some of your PPC budget, for example, and um, and and pull back on traffic acquisition for a bit so that you can invest in some CRO activity. And if you do the maths, it, it does depend on the situation, but if you do the maths, you can find that uh, the ROAS improvement is such that the return on investment is just a no-brainer. And you've, you've pushed the, the, the marker so far that um, you've, you've easily paid for whatever you've invested in any CRO activity, but you've also improved the way that PPC is performing. And so, you know, some, some people will say, well, should I pull back on the spend and actually invest that money into CRO directly? And that's the example I tend to give in my webinars. However, in practice, um, you you can usually sort of prove that you're going to get some return on investment for doing some conversion rate optimization quickly enough to not need to reduce the actual spend because you'll find more budget because you're making more money. Yeah. There should be a strong enough case, shouldn't it, for it to come from its own part? But if people have got a finite budget, then yeah, taking out of media spend, there's there's a very clear and obvious case as to as to why you should do that, isn't there? Um, I've actually got a calculator as well, so I've got my own sort of site that I run alongside ClickThrough, which is alro.co.uk. And uh, one of the links in the main nav there is called ROI Calculator. So people can go on there and you can put in your current conversion rate, you can put in your average order value and your monthly traffic, and then you can model some projected CRO, 
conversion rate increases to see what your monthly improvement mm. could be. And so you can see theoretically, you know, what that could look like if you shifted the dial. Cool. What's the URL again? Um, alro.co.uk. I feel like we're dealing with a pro here, Liv. He's plugged his band, yeah. he's plugged yeah. his website, he's, <laughs> he's got his checklist of what am I going to plug on this, uh, on this uh, <laughs> podcast today. And you talked about, something you talked about earlier, Al, was um, around speed. And obviously speed's a big thing for SEO, so how much can can Crow influence SEO, do you think? Because obviously if, you, if you're improving speed, that's got to help your SEO as well, right? Yeah, so technical performance has long been important for, for SEO and, you know, mm. we sort of think about SEO in technical and content terms, but one of the biggest conversion killers has always been and remains site speed. So I've been a champion of site speed optimization for longer actually than I got into UX conversion rate optimization and I think um, everybody needs to care about site speed Google you know for, for quite a long time I was trying to have conversations with businesses and t- telling them that it was really important that they dealt with these issues but then Google kind of forced that last year with their page experience update that came out around sort of June July August and so all of a sudden with Core Web Vitals their new set of metrics for measuring um site speed and uh, experience user experience businesses all over the world started to take notice and so now you can actually have slightly more informed conversations with businesses because of that but yeah poor load speed one of the biggest conversion killers so when i'm auditing a site that's the very first thing i look at yeah just as i can you just tell me what ux is please Um, (laughs) sorry (laughs) ux is user, uh, user experience Ah, uh, okay, cool. I did hear you say that, and I was like, it can't be that, because experience begins with an E. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make the acronym, so yes, it's, grammat- no. it's grammatically flawed. Don't take it I up with Al, yeah. I won't blame you. And I will find out who created that, though, and I will take it up with them. <laughs> so, load speed's one of your top conversion killers, Al. Is there any others that you see regularly that that you still see, like, common mistakes that you still see sites making out out in the wild? Yeah, we have actually a, um, a 60-point checklist, a conversion rate optimization audit, landing page audit that we sometimes run for clients. And so, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can look at. Um, but there's, you know, I, I suppose instinctively I kind of look for aspects of those those 60, but you'll you'll see time and time again problems with layout poor layout um poor poor content layout so poor laying out of the stool um poor flow of information um poor signposting um poor color schemes poor readability um but then it can be through to other things like trust and credibility so lack of lack of things to add credibility or trust to a business Uh, and then on e-commerce there's things like um making it more difficult to add things to basket um so poor add to cart buttons poor checkout experience um poor payment pages um poor mobile optimization mm. live as a as a consumer is the one thing that you see on a site that that puts you off do you know what i actually am such like i feel like i'd I don't know what comparison I was going to use then, but I just, I really am so rubbish at like spotting things that are wrong. So, like, I I almost got scammed the other day because I saw a website that was like selling Dr. Martins for like £40. 
and I sent them to a to my boyfriend and I was like, is this is this legit? And he was like, Olivia, read. And it was like none of the words was felt right at all. <laughs> like there was no like add to cart button. It was just like adding everything to cart. And then he was like, how didn't you, how did you not stop this? And I was like, you know what? As soon as I see something that I'm like searching for that I want, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You the dream, you the dream, It doesn't matter yeah. if it's spelt wrong. I'm always worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> To be honest, though, um, that's that's interesting because there's a lot of um, scam websites that that use a lot of conversion rate optimization best practice to really to hoodwink you and and you know if they're going to scam you then then they have to trick you and you know the the old traditional term is is con trick which con is confidence so they they confidently look like a real business and a real website. Um, and that's how they get get people to to hand over their details, which they'll then use for nefarious purposes, no doubt. And yeah. you know, only the other day I was looking for some music software. Um, I got my birthday money, and I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to invest in a piece of music tech. And I found a website which was about half the price of the others, and I thought, oh, great, you know, I could buy two pieces of tech with the m- money I've got. And he, and you know, I went, I got quite far. And I thought, is this legitimate? And then there was no PayPal option. And so therefore they just wanted... There was just stuff about the checkout process and I was thinking, hold on a minute. So then I put the brand name in and put brand name reviews to check to see what other people were saying and then people just said, this is a scam website. So, you know, I was nearly, nearly fooled. I think if something's too good to be true, it probably is. (laughs) It probably is, yeah. How long did it take you to figure out that it was a scam? Overall, I was probably on there for about fifteen minutes, ten fifteen minutes. I'm definitely an idiot then, because I was on half on there for half an hour, filling up my basket, <laughs> thinking that I'd gone the bargain of the century. I, I think the, the the trick is always um, if it's a. I mean, that's why Amazon's worked so well, and you know, Amazon is a great example of conversion rate optimization in terms of trust and credibility because they've taken years and years and years and weren't even making a profit for for years to build up trust and credibility and now of course we trust them so actually it's probably quite rare for people to buy these days outside of the amazon environment for certain things so if you are on a new website that isn't amazon um the probably a good thing to do is to type that brand name in followed by the space reviews and see what other people are saying about them because there's a heck of a lot of businesses advertising on facebook for example where they embed Shopify into Facebook directly and, you know, you see the advert. And I must admit, for quite a long time, advertising on Facebook really worked well for me. They seem to, you know, they've obviously got so much data they knew about me, they were giving me relevant ads. I was seeing things that looked kind of cool, like I got a roll-up piano, for example, and um, (laughs) (laughs) which is absolutely rubbish and a complete waste of money. Um, But it seemed like it might be fun at the time. And I bought that through Facebook. I didn't trust, I didn't necessarily trust the business or know them, but there are so many scams on Facebook advertising. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's important to try to ask yourself, is this what you might call a pop-up shop where somebody's basically gone to China and bought a stack load of a product, then set up a Shopify site selling one exact product. And it was a really great sell. I loved, you know, it was, it was video, Big, big pictures, big explanation. Uh, other people are saying this about it. So it really did a great sales job. 
to the point that I bought the thing and I thought, yeah, I'm such an idiot myself to do so. <laughs> but I didn't research I, them. So I kind of yeah. learned from that experience. I'm always going to look for reviews for a brand. I had a real life example last night where I got to the checkout and I was about to check out and then I, I stopped last minute and um, I, won't, I won't name the brand, but the site was really slow. Um, I was doing it on my mobile to the point where like, it kept because the site was rendering badly like you'd always click on the wrong thing and have to navigate back but I stuck with it because the price seemed quite good um, and then I got to check out the worst thing was you put something in your basket and your basket would pop up and it'd say continue to check out and you just go to press it and it'd pop back down again so <laughs> which was quite bad um, but then I got to the checkout and um, the the offer which I'd seen I'd seen it on TikTok and it popped up loads of times and it was like this VIP offer and then you got to the checkout, and it was like, this is, this is a VIP offer. And then the fine print, actually it wasn't that fine. It was like in your basket saying, this was signing up to be a VIP member, which is £49 a year. You'll be oh, charged really? this on, yeah, you'll be charged this on the 6th of April, unless you phone this number to cancel. And I just thought, I'm not, not doing this. But no, I'm not doing this for two pairs of shorts and a, and a hoodie or whatever it was. Name yeah. them, name them. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, well, it was reading the fine print then, I suppose, is a bit of a take-home there. Yeah, I mean, it did say VIP offer, but I didn't realise you had to pay to be a VIP. Um, and I think you could have just cancelled it and still got the offer price, but yeah, I just I couldn't be bothered. I went on Amazon and bought some instead, which were a couple of pounds more, but um, it's Amazon, isn't it? So I know they're going to turn up tomorrow and there'll be no hassle with that I don't quite know where that class is or whether it's uh, user experience or just slightly interesting practices well the subscription model is an interesting one because that you know all businesses that go for a more sort of ongoing income basis it's a software as a service is a good example it's it's a well-known successful way to run a business so Mm. if you can do that you know you you see loads of businesses doing that with strange products um so was it cornerstone i think if that's right the one that did um monthly razor kits basically oh yeah there's been there's been a few of those this was shorts though well i don't need that many pairs of shorts no no (laughs) but yeah if you get signed up to a subscription that's obviously beneficial for them um but the fact they had to hide it i think is not great practice Um, at all yeah yeah so um how easy is it for you all to spot like where a conversion issue is is it as simple as identifying something at face value um the tools that you use um yeah what what's your kind of process when when you get on a site to to find out where the issues may be i think the more data you can have the better so um if I can get access to things like Google Analytics, Hotjar and heat map analysis and all of that sort of stuff, it's obviously better. But I can come at it from the, just the best practice point of view and, and spot things. If I get to have a conversation with somebody in advance to sort of hear what their pain points are, then that's great. Um, I can normally sort of see a whole list of things that I think should be red flags, but if they have specific issues, then uh, I can investigate those to try to figure out what, what might be going on. Mm. What do you, like, think of... Like, obviously, you're coming at it from an expert point of view, but it would would it be as easy as, like, a client to to spot a problem? And what yeah, would the sort so of red flags, red flags bear? It all depends, and it, 
I find that people who work in e-commerce are much more aware and much more on it than people who work in lead gen, lead gen businesses. And I think that's because e-commerce by its nature has more data around it. And so marketers or e-commerce managers working on e-commerce businesses tend to have more data around. So if they stay close to their data, as a lot of them do, then you they, they will spot kind of problems because they'll see changes to their pattern and only um in the last couple of weeks one of one of our clients has got an add to basket issue on a magento website and um and the e-commerce manager there kind of spotted this quite early on because she could see there was the conversion rate had dropped so she was keeping her eye on many things you know revenue but also conversion rate and she spotted that it dropped and it is due to a technical problem which needs to be fixed so certainly if the effect is big enough then e-commerce people will 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 see that for themselves just because they're aware of their own data Mm. have you ever been on a website i know that we're sort of like i'm going back into a conversation we were just having but have you ever been on a website and spotted loads of things wrong and then thought you know what that'd actually be a good client and move forward with sort of like I don't know have you ever emailed anyone and been like your website needs some changes do you want me to do it or is that just me thinking um in a no, very no, ideal uh, that, God, there's there's many times where uh where I'm using a website for myself and I found sort of historically particularly uh, insurance websites fit into this category of of just being kind of so old school that they're just not aware of the fact that the world has moved on and that form filling should be a pleasurable experience. I mean, type type form moved the way that forms are, and yet so many form forms, especially insurance quotation forms, just seem very old school and very slow. And if it if it annoys me so much, then I have on occasion contacted them and said. From a UX perspective, this is appalling. You need to do something about it. I'm a UX specialist, so uh, if, if, if it's of interest, get in touch. But I can't say that approach has ever worked. Oh. <laughs> it's more of venting you... a frustration thing, I think. <laughs> Just r- ranting at them. Have you... Well, do you know... This is sort of probably a question unrelated, but with sort of like um, insurance companies and, and probably like utility companies, do you think that the way their website is designed is designed to a certain way because it fits into an older demographic to like 40 plus maybe because i was speaking to um my partner's grandparents the other day and he will not have a smart meter fitting because he thinks that like british gas are going to listen to him and and stuff like that (laughs) and do you think it's like a similar thing like you have to keep it like would you have to keep it old school to keep like the oldies happy no i don't think that at all i i think uh Best practice design works for everybody. So good user experience is, is almost universal. So we talk about universal principles and, and you know, luxurious, nice f- forms to fill in are not off-putting to the older generation. I think more often than not, the reason why things are how you describe there is because... Um, there are some suppliers of the core quoting engine... And they 
they don't move on and the they require a certain set of data don't they to provide the quote yeah, yeah i used to work with one of the big aggregators and i think the motorbike quote was 19 pages long and we still have people filling it in on mobile which i couldn't believe anyone <laughs> stuck with it for 19 pages on mobile because this was about 10 years ago when mobiles weren't even very good but nokia. there you go but yeah. just on a nokia 3210 a 19 page form yeah but the insurance websites themselves don't have any control over it you see because they're just embedding mm. it so whilst they might try to you know get that quote provider to make a change actually there's a risk to that business making that change because they've got you know a hundred insurance companies using their system and if they make one change for one person it might break it for 99 so because of that that quoting engine moves slower in its evolution there we go. We've deep dived into conversion optimization and insurance, but to take it back up a level, <laughs> do you think um, conversion optimization? Uh, would you say it's a science or would you say it's an art form? I think it's a bit of both. As I was saying, sort of earlier, there's there's design which can come from an emotional place and an, an intuitive place, and that's that's uh, mixed with best practice, and best practice comes from experience. Um, but the way that we try to do it is to also use a data layer, so to to look at as many data sources as we possibly can. Um, list, you know, it could be listening to sales staff and the common questions that they get asked. It could be looking for problems in Google Analytics, as I said before, or Hotjar, other sort of tools like that, to try to inform the basically the choices that you're going to make and the experiments that you think you want to run. Um, but we take it one step further with our flagship methodology, which is called data-led design. And this also uses um, quite a scientific process of iterating offline uh, designs via user testing. So we would, we would take a design, um, you know, having used all the data sources and analysed those, worked out what we, what we think we need to change, made a hit list, talked to the client, uh, worked out what we should prioritise, and then happened upon one designed it and then we'll actually do an offline user test to compare that one with the live one and we'll get quantitative feedback there and qualitative feedback there and then we can listen to that and then if if the new one isn't good enough basically if it isn't definitely going to beat the existing one then we can use all that feedback redesign it iterate it test again and keep on doing that until we're absolutely certain or as certain as we can be at least that the new design is going to be better and then we would go into an online split test and more often than not far more often than not it's true it's so interesting though because that's obviously where the art perspective really comes into it to make it like a lot more creative process for you but how how did you actually get into it because i feel like crow's been longer Crow has been around longer than data-led design, but how did you sort of like make that transition to include both? Um, well, a colleague of mine, Matt Hitches, we he used to work for me at Blossom Digital, which was the agency I sold in um, back in the day. He is a web developer as well, and because we were both web developers and then we later got into conversion optimization, we kind of brought some of those principles to it, and I think it led... Um, to a slightly different way of thinking because we, we'd worked with other people that were more traditional conversion rate optimization types. Um, but we found that we just had a slightly different approach. 
and it was partly because of market research so you know you're aware of people doing market research all the time to, to work out whether a brand is working or not and in a sense you could sort of say that's real world user testing because they're going out asking questions and it was it was really thinking about that and bringing that into the world of conversion rate optimization that led to data-led design do you think that you are, um, in the least arrogant way possible, a pioneer of data-led design and help bring it to like, the forefront of, of UX, the new word that I know, and Crow? Uh, well, that specific question is, am I a pioneer of data-led design? And the answer to that is, is slightly more easy to answer yes to, because nice. we kind of, uh, we, we, you know, we've created data-led design, so we are pioneering it. Um, Am I a pioneer of conversion rate optimization? There are so many different ways of looking at conversion rate optimization, so many different kind of strands of it and approaches to it. I think that I'm pretty good at certain parts of it, but I'm only one person and there's all kinds of other aspects which other people are better than me um, at doing. Very good. Um, and obviously, digital permanently changes, doesn't it, Al? How's... Um How's conversion optimization and, and data-led design evolved over time and how do you see it evolving in the future as well? And that's quite a big question. Well, only last week actually in the BBC news um, there was an article about how a company, and there's a few companies now doing it, are using AI and machine learning to predict whether adverts are going to do well. And it, the example was Cadbury's, and they had a an advert of a of a of a person dressed as a gorilla playing the drums. And, I saw you share this article, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and basically, the the people at Cadbury's were very un, unsure about this. Yeah, they thought it was too off the wall. They they thought it might alienate people, and they just didn't know. So this this agency down in London were hired to to look at this and basically predicted again using offline user testers uh, that 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 advert was going to work and yeah. when it was put into practice it, it really did so a lot of the time when i'm talking about on my webinars and, and elsewhere i will be saying that the best companies are already doing this kind of approach they might not be calling it data-led design but they're aware that offline user testing and really a holistic approach, uh, a market research approach to everything that you do across all of your digital marketing gets better results. And AI is only going to help that, push that forward. And do you think they predicted that people would be speculating if that was actually Phil Collins in the gorilla suit? <laughs> I'm sure many people will, will have done that. Yeah, I mean, you because know, the, the craziness of that advert is is bound to spark off some some social media sharing just just with questions like that right mm. yeah exactly and you're right this isn't a new thing really is it conversion rate optimization and and estimating the the success because if you think about it shops have been doing it to us for years like Absolutely. you go into ikea you might think you're walking around under free will but really you're being very <laughs> carefully guided around the shop aren't you to maximize your chances of buying tea lights and uh, and you soup ladle or whatever random stuff you get so in physical retail it's been it's been a practice for for quite some time hasn't it well you can see in morrison's if you go shopping that they will 
move the position of the uh, of, of certain products they mm. will try different offers as well so you know three for two let's say or um, or like I, I one of the things i buy is ribena for example and uh so i, I, I follow its price quite closely <laughs> <laughs> i say uh, rather sadly and I'm, I'm aware exactly when they're doing those kinds of experiments and what the behind the scenes the data analysts will be looking at the number of sales that occurred when the price was a, 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 a certain mm. point and it isn't even just that they'll be aware of a certain price working more and and you know the question is does it sell more or does it make more profit it isn't even a question of that i've even seen with some products that they get into a cycle so uh i, I really like zinfandel red wine for example and there's a <laughs> there's a particular bottle called wanted zin which they sell at morrison's and its full price is 10 pounds and its offer price is 7 pound 50 and i know for a fact that the £7.50 offer occurs for, say, two weeks, and then it's off for about eight weeks, and then it comes back on, and it's just going around in that cycle. And they must have realised, they must have, you know, worked out that actually that cycle even works. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think real-world business has been doing this sort of approach for, for years. Mm. I saw a, a TikTok the other day, it was the sweetest little old man, and he ran a watermelon store, and he he was selling one watermelon for three, three, let's say dollars for the sake of the argument, and then it was three for nine dollars. So obviously there's no saving there whatsoever. He's literally just times he's one watermelon price by three and put that on. But he like when questioned about it, he was like, you know, you're you're not giving anyone a deal, and he was like, yeah, but people are more like likely to buy three watermelons instead of one, just to bring up that argument. And I'm like. Oh, what a clever old man! Like what? <laughs> what whatever He's works, works. watermelons. Yeah, exactly. He's and how okay. do you see? Um, how do you see like the field going in the future? Because obviously, there's there's really exciting developments at the moment, like the metaverse, augmented reality, all that sort of stuff. How do you see conversion optimization fitting into into these developments? I definitely think it has a really big place in it, um, especially with new tech. When, when you have a new a new space um, come out, then essentially the the land of opportunity is much greater for within that sort of micro universe. Therefore, the standards of that that new place are not known, and so the very first thing that happens is massive amounts of iterative testing that goes on. I'm just about to. My, my son said. I really want a VR headset. He's uh, he's got his own YouTube channel. He's only eleven, but he's really into tech, and he wants uh, a VR headset. So we've done a bit of research. We're going to buy an Oculus Quest Two because that's mm. a good price point. And I've said, look, I'll go halves with you because uh, it's really about time I found out what was going on mm. in that sort of space f- f- because it it isn't going away. I thought it might go away. It isn't going away. There's far too many great films out there with, you know, Ready Player One being an example. People are going to want to go into that space. Mark Zuckerberg has changed his entire company name to Meta because of that. It's, you know, Zoom and Teams have made it clear that collaborative, uh, interactive workspaces are the norm now. And we're only going to want to see that happen more and more. It's... There have been a number of computer games, for example, where real-world businesses have advertised within those computer games. So, you know, within Minecraft, you can see Coca-Cola adverts, for example, in in places. Um, So you will see 
big big business starting to pick up on whatever the trends are and then look for advertising opportunities there so i think it's just completely logical that marketing will head into the metaverse as it develops and it and it can start off you know through computer games into virtual reality and then into the full metaverse when it happens uh and you know as i get older i find some certain things harder to do i'm not such a good program as i was as much as i'm really getting into python at the moment but one thing that i haven't lost my love for is new tech so i uh you know i i hope that i'll pioneer new avenues as i go forward into new spaces that get created cool so in minecraft they do like Truman, the Truman Show esque marketing for certain brands, and yeah, because there are um, there are big servers that kids go on, um, and they are communities, and so they they might be lots of mini games in there, and there's like a lobby that you go to first before you select your mini game, and you can see advertising within those lobbies. That is crazy. How would you even invest in that? That's, that's actually so interesting. What? I'll leave that to the people that deal with paid advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have no idea. Um, so, what would you say the best sorts of clients to work with, Al, for, for data-led design and, and Crow? Any specifics or, yeah, is it is it specific types of clients or is it more an attitude Um yeah, what do you find works best? That's Where do you a, get the best results? That's a good question. Very good question. Uh, I think conversion rate optimization can work and data design can work for almost any business. Where one of the things that I like to do is benchmark to see where a business is. So if they're in a particular space and their conversion rate is lower than the average, I know that there's good opportunity for them. Um, but for e-commerce, because of the data points that exist, we were talking about that earlier, there's a lot more data around. And so it's easier to quantify the gains that we make. So we can make dashboards that show categorically that when we're running a split test, that that variation that we've designed, having iterated it with offline user testing with data-led design, is yielding X thousand pounds extra. And we can create a dashboard for our clients and say, well, this experiment got you this X thousand pounds. And then over a six months of testing period, we, we definitely made you an extra hundred thousand pounds, let's say. Yeah. Whereas, um, and, then, and we can then say, well, you know, that's, we can categorically state that we have made that money for you, but that was only during the, t- the, the testing periods of say two weeks, we were running traffic at 50% of the traffic. So if we doubled that to a hundred percent, we could probably say you could have made this much. If we scale it up to a month, you could have made this much. Mm-hmm. If we scale it up to three to six months, you could have made this much. So from our perspective, uh, we can, we can categorically state that we're making money for customers. The second thing as well is that businesses that have higher ticket items tend to do better. Um, the higher the average basket order, if you, I mentioned my conversion rate optimization calculator that's on alroy.co.uk earlier, and on there, um, the, if you play around with the average order value, you can see that the gains are bigger, and it's just because the amounts of money traded yeah, are higher. Um, so that's that's a factor. So I do when I'm talking to a client, I do 
use these benchmarks. I, I look at industry standards. I look at their conversion rate. I look at their average order value. I look at the traffic they've got. And then I do some mathematical modelling to, to basically to determine what opportunity I think there is. It's a lot harder to do that with lead gen. But it still yeah. works. Still works. Still works. And is there a, you talked about industry averages for conversion. Is there a way that people can know that? Or do you just have to be as knowledgeable as alro.co.uk to, to know what a conversion rate average should be for your sector? Uh, there are big companies that throughout the year do audits of this sort of stuff. You know, mm. y- usually e-consultancy, for example, will release a report um, that provides this. And Dave Chaffee, who... Uh, is one of our consultants um, whose website Smart Insights gathers all this sort of stuff. And um, I know for a fact that there's several blog posts on there that benchmark industry standards for conversion rate. And I I use resources like that to find this information out. And as a sort of question from me, what, you know, do you have any tips for anyone who's looking in to get involved with with crow and dl day and this is the chance for another plug for the alro the alro school of kids who can't read good (laughs) (laughs) i think if you uh if you find you know if you're a designer a graphic designer or a website designer and you find that you think a little bit more about what users do and what it's like to be a user using a website that you might be involved in creating, then that might be an indication that user experience is for you. And then that's a good indicator. That's a central part of conversion rate optimization. So I think it's a natural path to go from being a designer through into conversion rate optimization if you if you care about the customer. If all you care about is, is making it look good, then maybe not, maybe less so. Mm. And then likewise, there are, you know, data science is increasingly important. So people coming from a statistics background, data analysis background, there's an awful lot of crossover there as well. Cool. Um, I think we're pretty much out of time, Al. The uh, the hour's flown by because it's been so interesting. Um, but obviously we can't let you off without having to subject you to Liv's random question, which, Liv, over to you. <laughs> Do you know what? I've got to, sorry to, to take up all time, but first is actual just a question from me because I'm quite interested, which is, what is the best um, role you've ever had in like um, a play or a musical or anything dramatic? Oh, well, that is a tough one. I, I, I got into acting because my son started acting at like age two and at school I hated drama. So... Although I've been in bands, um, I didn't really like the idea of acting. And it was only through him that I got into it. So I think the best role I've ever had was playing this character called Jackson in a musical written by Howard Goodall, who wrote uh, the Red Dwarf theme and the Blackadder theme called The Hired Man. And that was a, a leading role. And it was at Litchfield Garrick. So it was a big audience. And uh, I got to do that with my son, Zephan. So it was it just it made it made me understand how important it is to spend time with your family and we every sunday afternoon we sort of had you know six hours of rehearsal together and one day in the week and 
from ev- ever since that moment i've thought right whatever i'm doing in life i have to make sure i have crossover interests with my children so that i get to do the same activity as them so with my other son for example we you know we do youtube videos together and mm. i do karate with him and i think that that kind of was the most important aspect I've also written um, a couple of musicals and we performed one at Sutton Arts Theatre and it was called Hamlin the Musical. I wrote all of the songs for it. And again, I played um, I played the town crier and he was a bit of an idiot. So uh, it was fun to play something, which I <laughs> hope I'm not. But who Definitely knows? Uh, but again, that was with my son, Zeph. So, uh, How about you, Liv? Because aren't, uh, aren't you a little bit dipping your toe oh, in this yeah. world as well? I am. I have. Um, I've been in quite. Been in quite a few things actually. I played um, Mrs. Johnston in Blood Brothers. If anyone's watched that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've played Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's great. Um, yeah. There was a play, and it's called The Wonderful World of Dissocia. I can't remember who wrote it, but I played. Uh, a security guard but it was like a very very funny character like Tweedledum and Tweedledee type thing because I had um, like someone that I played very very closely beside of and then most recently um, the theatre company that I um, perform with which I'm going to do a little plug uh, Split Mask Theatre Company in Basin Cannock they the director there was my old school teacher and he's absolutely fantastic and he wrote his own play and it was called Moving On and it was a really, really brutal story, to be fair. It was about um, a family with, like, two daughters and a, um, and a son. And the wife gets diagnosed with cancer. And it's just about, like, her moving on and then moving on from, from her death. It sounds really, really morbid, but if I do say so myself, it's quite good. I've got a, uh, a podcast called The Good Row Podcast, which is uh, interviewing sort of people connected with the dramatic arts connectivity community creativity so uh, perhaps we'll have to have you as a guest on that i would love to all right and you know what i'm so impressed today with the amount of plugging that you have done i am <laughs> so like fourth or fifth plug fifth i think but it's all been so organic i'm so jealous but yeah i would love to all right please have me um, no worries <laughs> and then random question is what is your toxic trait so just as an example, just to set the scene, mine is that I think I'm really, really good at every sport. <laughs> <laughs> so even if I haven't done it, I'm thinking, yeah, I could do that. Like Bob saying, yeah, I've got that in the bag. Like I just genuinely think I could do anything. Um, I, 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 I think I have the same problem. I, I basically am not scared to try anything. <clears throat> and so I, I jump into the deep end a lot and at times in my life, I have bitten off more than I can chew and I've made terrible mistakes <laughs> because of it. And so I, 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 I'm a bit older now and I sort of think twice sometimes where before I just would have jumped straight in. So, yeah, I, I think I think perhaps wrongly I am p- perfectly capable of doing everything when I'm not. <laughs> oh, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a dreamer. <laughs> Christopher, what about you? I think relatively similar to you, Liv, like I watched sport on telly and I think, yeah, I could do that. I remember like, when I was about 23, I was watching golf and I was like, I reckon I could do golf. I went and got some clubs and I was absolutely awful. Um, but I'm also quite like all or nothing with stuff. So I'll get into yeah. it. I got into golf. Boil the and gear. Was, yeah, exactly. Boil <laughs> the gear, play it 
two, three times a week for six months, and then the clubs are in the back of the garage for yeah. the rest of my life, basically. And that's that's the story of my life. I just go through fads and then, then lose interest and move on. I did that with hockey. I spent like five hundred pounds on like hockey sticks and balls, and I actually got. <laughs> I actually got to a national level, but I was on the bench, so I had no part in, like, getting to national level at all, but it's still, like, one of my proudest achievements. Are you on the national level? I mean, that's that's well, no easy thing to do. I was when I was about 13, but honestly, I, I had no part in that. I was on the bench from start to finish. <laughs> Doesn't matter, I still got selected. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, um... Thank you, Al. That that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, don't worry, though. We're going to be back in um, in a few weeks because we had a bit of a delay in recording this one. Joined by our paid social media supremo, Amy Cox. You always have to full name Amy Cox. Um, and Liv, this should be your time to shine, given this is your specialist channel, right? So I've got yeah. high hopes. Um, <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on, as well as subscribing and following so you can be notified about the next time you upload. Alternatively, if you've missed any episodes so far, be sure to head back and have a listen. You never know, you might just learn something new. Um, you can follow Click Through Marketing on all the usual social media platforms and find out more via our website, clickthrough-marketing.com. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.